Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 83 of the Bible in 90 Days. Today we cover 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters. Chapter 1 begins with a brief greeting to the church in Corinth, including expressing gratitude for God's providence among them. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Then Paul gets right to his first point. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. Then Paul reminds his readers of his central theme. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This message is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. His final point in the chapter is an invitation to humility. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Chapter 2, by the way, the first of these chapters that I'd recommend reading opens with Paul acknowledging, when I come to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul then argues that this message was, not with the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, but God's wisdom. Some lines later, he asserts the centrality of the Spirit in this message. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. In chapter 3, Paul wastes no time on flattery. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. What's the big problem in Corinth? There is jealousy and quarreling among you. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Paul then explains, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. While Paul acknowledges that different individuals play different roles in the building of the church, or as he later calls it, God's temple, he is unmistakably clear. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Those who build on this foundation will have their work tested because the day will bring it to light. In the final words of the chapter, he urges no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Chapter 4 begins... This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. The church and her leaders, Paul argues, must proceed with caution 
because God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Paul then addresses again how members in the church are boasting of being a follower of one of us over against the other. In the middle of this conflict, the church was acting as if they were reigning. And then Paul shared how the Christian leaders, like himself, were sacrificing for the church. We go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. Then he explains his purpose. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul tells them Timothy has been sent to remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. Then Paul tells the church, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. Chapter 5 is about dealing with a case of incest. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Several lines later, Paul instructs, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Finally instructing, expel the wicked person from among you. Chapter 6, Paul addresses the church over suing each other. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? A few lines later, he scolds, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Paul then addresses sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Chapter 7 is focused on counsel regarding marriage, apparently addressing an issue in the church. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. His counsel is quite simple. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The chapter contains quite a bit of advice on marriage, including counsel regarding faithfulness to unbelieving spouses, asking, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or, how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Following this, there's a brief section on contentment. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. The rest of the chapter is devoted to more counsel about marriage. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Observing also, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Paul also observes, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Chapter 8 addresses food sacrificed to idols. Paul acknowledges, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. And yet, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. His final encouragement on the matter is basically summed up in this line. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Chapter 9 finds Paul on the defensive. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. In the chapter, he argues two major points. First, he advocates for his right to financial remuneration. Whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. But, he speaks to the church, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The we here, by the way, is a reference to Barnabas and perhaps other mission laborers. Second, Paul explains, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Finally, Paul gives a word of counsel to the church about self-discipline. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Chapter 10, by the way, another chapter well worth reading, begins with Paul reminding the church of ancient Israel's history. And then, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Next, he points to the suffering they experienced on account of idolatry, sexual immorality, presumption, and grumbling, urging the church not to follow in their footsteps. And then this promise, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Paul then spends several lines addressing idolatry. Flee from idolatry, warning the church. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Paul concludes the chapter by addressing the topic of freedom. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He continues this line of thought for several verses, then concludes in part, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Chapter 11 begins by addressing head coverings in church and then a major concern, how the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. 
calling out division at the Lord's Supper between the rich and the poor, then reminding the church of the central focus of the supper, the broken body of Christ. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Chapter 12 begins, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And these gifts are given for the common good. Paul then lists several examples, then instructs, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Paul then extends this argument to double down on the unity that must be present in the church, pointing to the human body as an example. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Chapter 13, by the way, another chapter well worth reading, holds out what Paul knows is even more important. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. While spiritual gifts are of great importance, as Paul so recently argued, love matters more. Because while gifts have temporary utility, love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Chapter 14 continues Paul's teaching on gifts with a special focus on tongues and prophecy. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The entire chapter essentially argues for intelligent, orderly worship, with the first part specifically addressing the place of tongues. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul's focus on worship then shifts more directly to having an orderly gathering. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This is followed by careful instruction on conducting worship in such a way that it is done in a fitting and orderly way. Chapter 15, another chapter well worth reading, is an incredible teaching on the believer's hope of resurrection. 
A few lines in, Paul writes, beginning the chapter, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After some additional thoughts on the apostles, as well as on his own ministry, Paul gets to the topic of resurrection. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul spends the rest of the chapter addressing this topic and its implications for the church. Near the end are these words. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Chapter 16 begins with the instruction for the Lord's people to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. Its purpose? Helping the struggling church in Jerusalem. The chapter and book wraps up with a mix of greetings and counsel, ending The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's all for today.